This is an ABC podcast. They're not alive, but they can be deadly. And if this pandemic has shown us anything, they are tricky, tiny beasts. Yep, we are talking viruses. And we are so lucky to have vaccines that work against this latest coronavirus, but not everyone can get vaccinated. And even if you do... Breakthrough infections will still occur and land some of us in hospital. And of course, new variants of this damn virus will almost certainly rock up too. So we will need to find other ways to thwart it. Or treat it. And that made us here at Science Friction wonder, 20 months into the pandemic, why haven't we made much headway with treatments that stop this virus in its tracks? Hey, I'm Natasha Mitchell. And I'm Belinda Smith. And... We just don't have that many drugs or cures for viral diseases full stop, which is in striking contrast to the plethora of effective medicines we've managed to come up with for fungal and bacterial infections. So amongst the legion of microbes, what makes viruses so hard to kill? We're looking into the past at previous viruses, at what's worked and why, and at some of the cunning detective work it took to find out. We have two whopping names in virology to help explain how. Starting with... Yeah, my name is uh, Raymond F. Shinazi, professor of pediatrics at Emory University, and I've been at Emory for more than 40 years. And Raymond has dedicated all that time to trying to stop viruses rampaging through our bodies. But Raymond's interest was sparked way back when he was eight, with a frightening encounter with one particular pathogen. My mother in Egypt, when I was about eight years old, had a miscarriage of twins. They, re- they removed the, 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 the twins from her, and she then had a, a yeast infection. And her stomach became ballooned and ballooned and ballooned and ballooned. I mean, I remember it vividly. I was a young man, and I could see it with my own eyes. And everybody was, couldn't do anything about it because we didn't have any medicine in Egypt to treat yeast infection. We knew what the drug was that could work, but it was not available in Egypt. It was terrifying. Raymond's mum was seriously ill, but the antifungal drug they needed was out of reach. At the time, you couldn't find nothing, not even one milligram in the whole of Egypt. Their only hope lay with Raymond's grandfather. He knew a commercial pilot. And he asked his pilot friend, would you please bring me this medicine? So he brought the vials back the pills back. My mother took the pills and lo and behold, my mother was normal again. Her stomach just collapsed. All the yeasts stopped existing in her body. Raymond remembers being amazed. And I was very impressed. Look at this, a little pill, take a pill for a few days and it cures a disease. How lovely is that? And I got my mother. My mother lived to be 94 years old. But just a few years after his mother's fungal scare, Raymond's family faced another dramatic test. In 1962, then-Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser, in a nationalist push, targeted people of foreign ancestry through a process called sequestration. Sequestration was basically nationalising an individual. So you go to your bank account, you go to your bank and try to get money out and it's you can't take the money out it's blocked 
You want to go to your business, you can't go into your business. You go into your home, you can't go into your home. You go and try your car, you can't get into your car. The government basically froze all your assets and you were left in the street, basically. Raymond's family was of Italian Jewish ancestry and, like many... We were basically forced to leave. They took their Siamese cat... Mitzi. ...but not much else. And we spent time, I spent some time, because I'm Italian, the Italian government allowed us to spend some time in a refugee camp in Italy. Fortunately, in those days, there weren't many refugees. <laughs> I can tell you, there are not very few Italian refugees, so we had almost the place to ourselves. <laughs> but it still wasn't, it wasn't gourmet food, I can assure you. <laughs> Despite all this upheaval, Raymond went on to thrive in the UK, at school, and then at university. And then it was on to the US, where, as a freshly minted scientist, he got his first gig. He was catapulted into the weird world of viruses, via an interesting plant from a far-flung part of the world. Actually, close to Australia, from Fiji, a plant that was obtained from Fiji that had an alkaloid in it that was interesting as an anti-cancer agent. Alkaloids, by the way, are just naturally occurring compounds which play a vital role in living organisms and have all sorts of potential medicinal properties. So my job was to actually extract the juice from the plant and basically isolate the active chemical and then actually make a synthesis for it and then make analogues of that particular compound. That is, a human-made compound that mimicked the naturally occurring one. This is how many medicines start out. In this case, Raymond was investigating cancer treatments, but virology was just one step away because... In those days, you know, you knew that there'd be a third, if not more, of the cancers are caused by viruses. And in fact, Bell, today we think around 15% of cancers are thought to be caused by or linked to viruses. That blows my mind, actually. As an example, we know that the human papillomavirus causes cervical cancer and we have a vaccine against that now, which is a huge relief. And this connection between viruses and cancers is where Raymond found his feet as a virus buster discovering drugs that stop viral carnage. And to understand how scientists like Raymond do that, some Virology 101 is probably going to help us here, starting with, what is a virus? As far as organisms go, they're about as simple as they get. Most viruses are just a scrap of genetic material encased in a shell. It's incredible, isn't it? So simple and yet so destructive. But they can't replicate on their own. So they slip inside our cells and hijack our machinery to make more of themselves. Inside your cells, your DNA contains the blueprint or all the instructions to make you. Tiny biological machines read your DNA and build the proteins of your body. You can think of your cells as miniature factories. So when a virus slips its own genetic material into your cell, those tiny machines get tricked into reading virus instructions too. Okay, so instead of making proteins for you, they are now serving their new overlord, the virus. In a matter of hours, millions of copies of virus can be created and then they're off to infect and kill more cells in your body, in other people's, and so it goes and goes and goes and goes until there's a pandemic. So 
Viruses are tricky because if you knock off the machinery in our cells that help them to replicate, our cells won't work anymore. And that means death not just to the virus, but for us too. So virologists like Raymond are hunting for ways to throw a spanner into a virus's works without killing our cells in the process. I guess there are various approaches you could take here. You could block them from getting into your cells in the first place. And you could maybe interrupt their construction inside the cells. Or you can stop them getting out of one cell to infect other cells. These were questions Raymond grappled with in the 1970s with the herpes virus. And I worked for a professor by the name of William Prusoff. And he actually, in 1959, he had created a molecule that was used for herpes keratitis, which is basically the herpes of the eye. And it was actually used very successfully, first in animal models and then of the eye and then in humans. So it prevents blindness caused by herpes uh, simplex virus type 1 usually. So he became famous for that. And uh, I wanted to join his lab and learn more about antiviral. So he was like the grandfathers of antiviral agents. A crucial part of the life cycle of any virus is making heaps of copies of its own little package of genetic material. And to do this, it needs genetic building blocks. William Prusov's team had worked out how to make a building block that masqueraded as a real one, but it didn't work like one sabotaging the herpes virus in the cell. Raymond was hooked. He'd cut his teeth on the hard problem of herpes. I mean, I come from a herpes virus school of hard knocks. But then something even bigger was waiting on the horizon. HIV, the human immunodeficiency virus. Well, I was a young man working on herpes at the time. And frankly, I couldn't just stay idle. I had to do something. I started getting into HIV really in the early 90s. And this is where another big name in virology enters our story. So 92, 93. Professor Sharon Lewin is director of the Doherty Institute in Melbourne. And she's in the public eye a lot right now, helping guide Australia out of this pandemic. I was doing my infectious diseases training and then I went on to do a PhD in virology, looking at how HIV replicates in the lung. And at that time, it was just at the beginning of antiviral therapy. Like Raymond, Sharon's career as an infectious disease researcher was forged in the crucible of one of the most difficult viruses to ever confront science. There were some pretty crappy drugs out there. Um, The first one was a, a drug called AZT. This was the late 1980s. And it slowed things down a little bit, but um, basically the virus would rapidly develop resistance. That is, AZT would eventually stop working. And it also came with stacks of side effects. Now, by this time, Raymond had already been on the case for half a decade. But then the disease got deeply personal. Yeah, so my, my cousin died of HIV. And I couldn't do anything. He was about my age, a bit less than my age. It was very sad, very sad for me, for my family, for his mother. And uh, I'm just telling you, it's, it's tragic. Raymond's scientific success would come too late for his cousin, but his lab is now famous for its central role in developing two of the major antiretroviral drugs used to treat HIV so effectively today. 
And in fact, it was his work on herpes, wasn't it, that gave him clues about how to combat HIV? Yeah, that's right. After years of experimentation and some failures, they created counterfeit building blocks that stopped the virus creating more copies of itself in a similar way to that herpes drug. But scientists kept looking for ways to subvert HIV, this sneaky retrovirus that hides a copy of its genetic material inside your cell's DNA. And then this second group of drugs came along. These drugs kind of block up the little biological machine that makes copies of the virus's genetic instructions. There's a little pocket in the machine. And the drug gets wedged in there. A bit like a paper jam in a photocopier. And that's how it stops it from working. They were really the mainstay of treatment for decades and they were, had, were easier to make and they cost less and they had fewer side effects. We cannot underestimate how enormous this was. These drugs kept people alive with HIV, kept them alive and thriving. You might be one of them listening now. And it was found that they were especially potent when taken together as a cocktail of drugs. And at that time, it was momentous because basically people that took this treatment literally got off their deathbeds. They had advanced HIV. They were you know, close to dying. And suddenly when you stop the virus in its tracks completely, you allowed the immune system to recover and people went back to normal, healthy lives, really dramatic. And if you speak to people living with HIV who were alive at that time, it was, it was like a miracle from heaven because what happened was when they hit HIV with three drugs at the same time, the virus basically disappeared over days from the blood. So it just reduced dramatically. As a postdoc researcher, Sharon joined that team in New York City that came up with combination therapy. These days, her lab at the Doherty Institute is looking for a cure. But back in the 90s... At the time, the drugs were complicated. They had many side effects and they, you, off, you had to take, you know, 10 to 15 tablets a day for, the, for the, them to work. And they also had side effects and they were, had complicated interactions with your meals, etc. However, it was a small price to pay in order to get your life back. A couple more classes of HIV drugs soon followed. There was one that stopped the biological machine that builds the viruses out of shell. And another that prevents HIV's genetic instructions from being inserted into your own cell's DNA. You know, 25 odd years is an incredible improvement in the drugs so that you now take literally one tablet a day and the side effect profile is much better. It's much cheaper and it really was the great success story of the last century. Today, more than 90% of people with HIV in the US are treated with at least one drug Raymond Shinazi had a hand in developing. HIV can't be cured with drugs yet. These drugs don't scrub the virus from your body. But Raymond reckons they're as good as a cure. At the end of the day, you suppress the virus, there's no more transmission. When there's no more transmission, you have a cure. Same thing today with COVID. If you stop the transmission with vaccination, over drugs when we get them, you will stop COVID in its track. And that's the end of COVID. And you'll be able to travel again all over the world, if that's your passion. Oh, 
Yeah, what even is travelling anymore? On Science Friction, it's Natasha Mitchell and Belinda Smith with you. We'll come back to COVID-19 in a tick because, of course, that is what's on all our minds right now. Will we ever find a suitable treatment for coronavirus? But Raymond Shinazi and his colleagues, they did find a cure for another virus, hepatitis C which causes grief and disability for more than 320 million people globally. If left untreated, hep C can cause full-blown liver failure and the bleeding, bruising and cancer that can come with that. Hepatitis C is a young virus compared to the others. Young meaning it was discovered relatively recently, 1989. But unlike HIV, that other viral menace discovered in the 1980s, we knew that there was no latent form. So in other words, the virus could not hide. So we found basically the Achilles heel of this virus. There's nowhere for it to hide. It was just a matter of finding a good drug that would work, that's not injectable, that can be oral. And theoretically, with that drug alone, given for a shorter period, you can cure the disease. Like the drugs Raymond helped develop for HIV, the hepatitis C cure was another one of those deceptive genetic building blocks. Today, we have two major treatments. They're both extremely efficacious with nearing to 100% cure rate, not just treatment. So there we're actually clearing the liver of virus, completely clearing it. And basically, the virus is completely eradicated. I mean, imagine getting to say you've helped cure a disease. How awesome is that? It's paid off handsomely too, not just for people's health. It's a lot of hard work and eventually you get the rewards. Raymond and a couple of others co-founded a pharmaceutical company that developed that hep C drug. Then they sold their company to another one, Gilead, for $11 billion. $11 billion? $11 billion. And the reward is not not monetary. That comes as a dividend, as a a side effect, the money part. But the pleasure of seeing that you stopped the bleeding. And that's so important. And you know you've done something important in your life. We don't know his name, but he's given consent to share his fight. Now we have a new challenge. It's lonely in intensive care, no visitors are allowed. His only company, nurses and doctors, keeping him alive. Sydney hospitals haven't faced a greater threat than the Delta strain. Healthcare workers are are ready and uh, understand the, the gravity and severity of where we're at right now. Can what we've learned in the last 50 years of antiviral drug development help us get out of this one? A starting point is to look at existing medicines and work out whether they could act on the coronavirus. And for example, in COVID, there are some flu drugs that are being used for COVID that have some activity that are being investigated at the moment. One of them, an example, is favipiravir. But the drug you may have heard a whole lot of fuss about is remdesivir. It was originally developed as a hepatitis C drug, and then it helped out with the Ebola virus. 
Its mechanism is similar to that first herpes drug we heard about. Now, remdesivir has some advantage, but it's not spectacular. Remdesivir is like the AZT of HIV. You know, it gives you a little bit of time. It reduces your time in hospital. May potentially have a small mortality benefit, but it's not a, it's not a dramatically... I mean, in, a, in an era where we had nothing, yes, it was helpful. But And it's only in a certain group of people that you can use it. But it doesn't... If you actually measure the amount of virus in the nose when some with someone on remdesivir, you can hardly see a dint on the amount of virus in the nose. So it's not a potent antiviral. In HIV, Raymond and colleagues worked out how to suppress the virus, which was so good at lurking in our own DNA. So when it woke up and started replicating again... We can use a hammer, basically, or a drug and just smash it. It's the virus that's causing all the problems. And as soon as you turn off the virus, um, the immune system kind of writes itself, essentially. And you can use it at any time. But COVID-19 is different. It's more than the virus alone that makes you sick. What it does to your immune system is also a problem, inciting it to aggressively overreact and then attack your own organs. In a way, COVID is a two diseases. It's not just one. You have the early stage, which is mostly virological. That's where I come in. And there's also the inflammation part, which is late stage. So we have drugs that work late stage, and we're trying to develop drugs that work early. that can be given on an outpatient basis. And the challenge with developing antivirals is the complexity of the illnesses they cause. So I'll just use COVID as an example. So you infected with COVID, the virus is replicating like mad in your nose before you even get symptoms. And then you get symptoms and then a percentage of people will clear and do fine and and a percentage of people will get sick and they, they generally get sick in their second week or third week of illness. By the time they get sick, the virus is not really the main problem. The main problem is that it's your immune response to the virus that's not quite right and it's causing all this inflammation. And so I think the challenge is when to use the antiviral drug for illnesses like COVID and also influenza and using it early enough. And so you either have to have a very cheap, easily accessible non-toxic drug or you have to find out ways of predicting who's most likely to get sick. And that's really where we're at at the moment with antiviral drugs for COVID. And now we're learning as you you pull it back, as you start trying to get in an antiviral drug earlier and earlier, you're seeing more benefit. But we're going to have to treat a lot of people to get the benefit in the few people that progress. So I think what we'll see in current sort of months to, you know, in the next year, we'll see much better understanding of, who to treat, and how to catch them super early for COVID. Raymond is at the coronavirus frontline as well, looking for ways to thwart SARS-CoV-2. That's the virus that causes COVID-19 disease. And as it happens, in the past few years, he'd been studying emerging viruses with pandemic potential. So... If a big one went off, he'd be ready with drugs at work. And then a big one did go off. Oh, it did. We never thought it was going to be coronavirus. We all thought that it was going to be an influenza virus popping up. All of us were sort of worried about it, working on it. 
we never thought corona was going to be a big problem. Based on the last two coronavirus infections, they came and they went. And here we are stuck with this new coronavirus. Raymond's lab actually got some of his original samples of the SARS-CoV-2 virus from Sharon Lewin at the Doherty Institute in Melbourne. And he's looking at making drugs that target SARS-CoV-2 in a few ways, like designing more of those fake genetic building blocks. And we're making headway, but not as fast as we would like, to be frank with you, because the funding for antivirals has not been there. In June, the Biden administration announced it will stump up $3.2 billion to find antiviral medicines. And a significant amount of money is available. It's, it's primarily for COVID, but they also want to try and find drugs for emerging virus, the next pandemic, which I, which I think is a great idea. The only problem, frankly, if I may be critical, is that if our group succeeds in getting the money, it won't be available till May of next year. So I think it's maybe too late, maybe it's not too late, I don't know, but it's worrisome. So we have a lot more work to be done and I hope we have drugs, antivirals, soon, in the next year or less, really safe drugs. And, and I hope that we'll be better prepared for the next pandemic because we're going to learn a lot from this one. Ah, oh yeah, let's hope so. Hey? Huge thanks to Professors Raymond Shinazi and Sharon Lewin. I'm Natasha Mitchell. And I'm Belinda Smith. You can talk to us on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell and Science Belinda. Don't forget to share the podcast around. We love you tuning in every week. Tell us what you think. Take care wherever you are. May that vaccination, whichever one you can get hold of, find its way into your arm. See ya. Take care. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.